This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I'm your host, Dustin Smith. I appreciate you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, which is episode 180, entitled, Making Sense of Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13 is one of those ambiguous passages that either intends to call Jesus Christ God, using the Greek noun theos, or it could be understood as distinguishing Jesus Christ from God, namely the Father. This passage has been debated for a long time. In the commentaries, there seems to be no consensus as to what the passage actually meant. Grammatically, the passage is ambiguous, meaning the evidence could legitimately be read in multiple different ways, and there isn't a lot of definitive pointing evidence that suggests that one reading is better than the other. In fact, one commentary that I surveyed for preparation in this episode, said that the interpretation that interpreters like to take usually reflects their own theological bias. And he lamented at the fact that people are reading this passage in light of their theology as opposed to the evidence that is stated. Of course, it's difficult to tell what people are thinking whenever they interpret a passage, but In this week's episode, we will look at Titus 2.13 and look at multiple ways of interpreting the passage, and I will try my best to actually be objective with the passage. I've noted in some other podcasts that I think that the New Testament does use the title God for Jesus on rare occasion. And this does not mean that Jesus is the true God or that God and Jesus have been collapsed into a single being. I think that God, the true God, can share his name, his privileges, and his prerogatives with Jesus. And other human beings are legitimately called God or Elohim within the Bible. So if Jesus does turn out to be God in Titus 2.13... I don't think that my position is exposed as being false. Let's read Titus 2.13 within its context so that we can get the passage squarely within our mind before we move on further with our study. I'm going to start in verse 11 because the sentence in which Titus 2.13 exists actually begins back in verse 11. So starting in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. And so the real interpretive question is, does the phrase, our great God and Savior, refer to two persons, namely our great God, 
namely the Father, and the Savior, Jesus Christ? Or does the phrase, our great God and Savior, refer to one single person, namely Christ Jesus? We'll look at this passage and look at the pros and cons of each of the arguments in this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. So our first point today is looking at what I'm going to call the single person interpretation. This would be to interpret the ambiguous phrase, our great God and Savior, as referring to one single person. One person is our great God and Savior. And of course, it's argued that that person in Titus 2.13 is Christ Jesus. This interpretation would suggest that Christ Jesus is our great God and Savior. Now, in order to make this particular point, I'm going to look at the pros of this particular argument and the evidence that points to it as unbiasedly as I can. So for the single person interpretation, we can look at the phrase God and Savior and note that this actually was a pretty well-known formula and the combination of God and Savior was understood to refer to a single person rather than being a reference to two individual persons. In fact, you can see the combination of God and Savior used as a reference to one person throughout the Hebrew Bible. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the Septuagint, and in a variety of inscriptions covering hundreds of years from the Ptolemaic period all the way into the Roman Imperial period. In the Hebrew Bible, we can see passages like 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 3, which says that Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. So that's 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 3, to where Yahweh is the God of David and the Savior of David. David is speaking in that particular passage. So it's clear that the reference to God and Savior is referring to one particular person. Okay, In Psalm 106, verse 21, the psalmist says that they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Psalm 106, verse 21, where God and Savior refers to one single person, namely to God. We can see more of this in Isaiah 45, verse 21, where it says, Is it not I... Yahweh, and there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Isaiah 45, verse 21, where Yahweh himself describes himself as a righteous God and a Savior. Clearly, this is in reference to one single person. And so the argument goes that the phrase God and Savior would naturally be understood as referring to one particular person because this is how it was commonly used both in the Hebrew Bible and in the Septuagint as well as in inscriptions in the Greco-Roman world. 
So the argument would say that it's not natural that readers of Titus 2.13 would see a reference to God and Savior and to assume that this refers to two different persons. Another argument in favor of the single-person interpretation is what is called in Greek grammar the Granville-Sharp rule. Granville-Sharp was a Greek interpreter that had come up with this particular rule that says when the word and connects two Greek nouns of the same case, if there's a definite article that precedes the first of these two nouns and it's not repeated before the second noun, then the second noun always relates to the first noun. The point here is that we have the phrase great God and Savior in Greek, which in Greek is tu megalu theu ke sotiros imon. And in that you can see that the definite article is used for great God. We have the great God, and then we have the noun Savior. Since there is no definite article before the noun Savior, then the first definite article is used to connect the two nouns to refer to a single person. And this is also supported by the fact that the pronoun are, the first person plural genitive pronoun, is at the end of Savior, meaning it would be the great God and Savior of us as a literal translation. So that's the argument from the Granville-Sharp rule, which seems to suggest that the great God and Savior would grammatically be understood as referring to a single person, not to two individual persons, which you could read it in English. Now, another argument in favor of the single-person interpretation of Titus 2.13 says that it would be strange for the author to be speaking of the appearing that is, the second coming, of God the Father and of the Savior Jesus Christ. The point being is that it's not a common teaching in the New Testament or anywhere in Paul to where the Savior Jesus Christ is going to appear along with God the Father at the second coming. It's not generally taught that both God and Jesus are going to appear at the second coming, and so it would be strange to assume that Titus 2.13 is talking about the appearing of two distinct persons. It would be more natural to assume that it's one particular person, namely Jesus Christ, who is appearing. And that would, of course, be evidence to suggest that the phrase, great God and Savior, refers to that one single person, Jesus Christ. Now, you could make the argument that the risen Jesus is the beneficiary of God sharing with Jesus God's own name, God's privileges, and God's prerogatives. So it's very possible that you can conclude that Jesus is the great God and Savior in the sense of a functional equality. God, the true God, the Father, has shared with Jesus this name and this title, and so it's possible that Jesus could be called here the great God and Savior in a way that does not identify Jesus with the true God. It actually distinguishes them 
and demonstrates that Jesus has been highly exalted and highly authorized with this title in the same way that other qualified human beings in the Old and New Testament are given the title God. So that is another possibility for the first interpretation. Let's move actually to the second interpretation we're going to look at, which is the two persons interpretation. This interpretation, of course, suggests that the phrase, our great God and Savior, is referring to two different people. Our great God would be in reference to the true God, God the Father, and the Savior, Christ Jesus, obviously refers to Jesus as someone who is distinct and distinguished from our great God. So what is the evidence in favor of the two persons interpretation? Well, the most natural argument is that God and Jesus are usually distinguished in Pauline theology. The theology of Paul regularly distinguishes God and Jesus. It'll say God our Father and Jesus. In fact, it'll say the God of Jesus in a variety of passages. So naturally, the person who is familiar with Pauline theology would be reading Titus 2.13 and would see our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and naturally see, oh, this is a way of distinguishing the two, and they probably wouldn't collapse those two into a single person. Another argument in favor of the two persons interpretation is that nowhere else in the undisputed letters of Paul is Jesus called Theos. Now someone might make the argument with Romans 9.5, but I actually have an entire podcast episode on Romans 9.5 and how I think that is not as ambiguous as people might think, and I think that Jesus is not being called Theos in that particular passage. So I do think that there's nowhere else in the undisputed letters of Paul where Jesus is called God, and so for Jesus to be called God in Titus 2.13 would arguably be unprecedented for Pauline theology. Now, the noun Savior is actually used of both God and Jesus in the pastoral letters. Pastoral letters are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and there's a unanimous consensus that these three letters were all written by the same person. So by calling Jesus the Savior, should not be seen as evidence that he is being identified with the true God. So God, the true God, the Father, is called the Savior within the pastoral letters in 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 2.3, 1 Timothy 4 verse 10, Titus chapter 1 verse 3, Titus 2 verse 10, and Titus 3 verse 4. Jesus is also called the Savior in the pastoral letters in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, Titus chapter 1, verse 4, and Titus 3, verse 6. So even if we restrict our study to the letter of Titus by itself, we can see that the author is comfortable calling God and Jesus the Savior. And so by calling Jesus the Savior in Titus 2.13, you would not naturally think that that would be connecting Jesus the Savior with the great God, if the great God is in reference to the Father. 
Now, in regard to the Granville Sharp rule, which suggests that uh, two nouns that are connected with the word and, where the first noun has a definite article, would naturally be seeing those two nouns as referring to the same person. This rule wouldn't apply if the common sense interpretation was to distinguish God from the Savior Jesus. This particular argument is basically saying that if the reader is naturally going to assume that God refers to the Father and Jesus Christ is someone who is distinguished from the Father over and over again in theology and within the New Testament, then a rule that would break that common sense interpretation wouldn't apply. That's the argument that pushes against the Granville Sharp Rule. I should say as well that the Granville Sharp Rule is not a universal rule, and even uh, Greek experts would concede that particular point. It doesn't always work. It's more of a Granville Sharp suggestion, which works many times, but it doesn't work 100% of the time. Another argument in favor of the two-persons interpretation is that difficult statements like the ambiguous Greek statement in Titus 2.13 needs to be read in light of the clear passages. And a clear passage within the pastoral letters, if we are keeping it within those three letters, would be 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, which says, There is one God and one mediator between God and humans, who is the human being Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy is written by the same author as Titus, and 1 Timothy 2.5 places the human being Jesus between the one God and humanity by functioning in the role of a mediator. So to assume that the man Jesus Christ is the great God and Savior, while also insisting that there is one God distinguished from Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5 would be to suggest something that is nonsensical confusion. It would be as if 1 Timothy 2.5 should really be interpreted as saying there is one God and there is another God who is between the first God and human beings who is a mediator. And this is something that would propose two gods and monotheism would completely collapse. I don't think that is a good reading of 1 Timothy 2.5. And so the point is that we should not allow for an interpretation within the pastoral letters with the assumption that the author is being consistent with this understanding of God and Jesus that would break apart the clear, straightforward, common sense reading that we can see in 1 Timothy 2.5, which distinguishes Jesus from the person who is called the one God. Now, while it might be strange to speak of the appearing of God and of Jesus at the second coming, which is something that readers who take the two-persons interpretation have to naturally conclude by reading Titus 2.13. The authentic letters of Paul do actually speak about the Day of Judgment as involving both the judgment seat of God and the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul can say to his readers that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Romans 14, verses 10-12, 
And Paul can also say that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. So Paul seems to suggest that the second coming would involve God as well as Jesus. Maybe it really is the judgment seat of God that has been passed over to Jesus in the sense of shared privileges and prerogatives. But Paul never comes out and actually says that the second coming will actually have the coming of God to accompany Jesus. Another argument in favor of the two-persons interpretation is that the phrase great God was always used of the true God, namely God the Father. And of course, this would be the natural way of understanding Titus 2.13, which would not be confusing the great God with Jesus. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21, it says that Yahweh your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. And the Septuagint translator of this passage uses the same phrases for great and God that we have in Titus 2.13. Same thing can be found in Psalm 77, verse 13, which says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? The implication there is that no God is great like our God because our God is the great God. And in Psalm 95, verse 3, it says, For Yahweh is a great God. All three of these passages use theos and the adjective great to refer to God. And those same words are the words that are used in Titus 2.13. And so the argument is that the phrase great God naturally would refer to the Father and nobody would confuse the great God with Jesus. Therefore, the great God refers to the Father, and the Savior refers to Jesus, and it is referring to two different persons. Another argument is to remind ourselves that Titus 2.13 is towards the end of a sentence that begins back in verse 11. And at the beginning of verse 11, the phrase God is already used to refer to the Father. So let me read that passage again so we can kind of see how this works. So beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, that God is God the Father, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And so the argument would be that if God was already used earlier in the sentence to refer to the Father, it would be completely unprecedented to also refer to Jesus as God, as Theos, in the same sentence. Because there is nowhere in the New Testament to where both the Father and the Son are described as Theos. I think that's a very powerful argument. So listeners might be wondering, which of these interpretations do I take? Which of these interpretations do I find persuasive? And my answer to this is that I actually don't take either of these interpretations. 
I actually have a secret interpretation, which is our third and final point today. Our third point today is the third option, which is the glory interpretation. What is the glory interpretation? Well, the glory interpretation suggests that Jesus Christ is the reference of the glory because in Titus 2.13, it talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And I think that Jesus Christ is the apposition to this reference to glory. So there is going to be the appearance at the second coming of the glory of our great God and Savior. Who is the glory of our great God and Savior? Well, that person is Jesus Christ. So this reading would take Titus 2.13 as seeing the great God and Savior referring to one person. It refers to the Father, it refers to the true God, and the appearing entails the appearing of Jesus as the glory of the Father, that Father who is the great God and Savior. Now this particular interpretation, which I'm calling the glory interpretation, has all of the strengths of the one-person view, and it doesn't have any of the weaknesses of the two-person view. It also allows for the writer to only call the Father Theos, and it doesn't use that title for Jesus. Now, in taking this interpretation, it's very important to understand that Jesus is coming in God's glory. And actually, this is a pretty common New Testament teaching, that at the second coming of Jesus, Jesus is going to appear in the glory of the Father, or with the glory of the Father, and that the risen Jesus bears the glory of the Father. This is a pretty common New Testament teaching. So in Mark 8:38, Jesus himself says that the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father. Mark 8:38. So Jesus says that he is going to come back in the glory of his Father just like my suggestion of the glory interpretation, to where the appearing of the glory of the Father, namely our great God and Savior, that glory is actually Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 54, that if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. John 8, 54. So Jesus bears the glory of God, that God is described as Jesus' Father, and the Father of Jesus is the one whom the Jews agree is their God. So Jesus bears the glory of God. Now, in Pauline theology, if we're getting a little bit closer to the theology in Titus, we can see in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, about the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Christ is the image of God, and he bears this particular glory as one who is imaging God. A few verses later, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the face of Christ bears God's 
glory. And Paul seems to assume that this is something that God has shown in our hearts. God has shared this with his readers in a very powerful and meaningful way. At the beginning of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about the risen Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So to depict Jesus as the glory of God is not something new or novel in Titus. It's something that Jesus himself was remembered as saying in Mark and John. It was part of Pauline theology pretty strongly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's part of the Christology in the letter to the Hebrews. Another argument in favor of the glory interpretation is that the suggestion that Jesus is in opposition to this glory is actually not an unheard of presentation in a Pauline theology. So to see Jesus as the glory of God, who is the great God and Savior, in this long sentence to where the reference of Jesus is much earlier in the sentence and Jesus is described later is actually something that we can see in Pauline theology. So I want to give you a passage and I want to show you how this works. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, you're going to note that there is a long discussion about the understanding and the true knowledge of the mystery of God. And this mystery of God is eventually described as Christ. And then we're going to look at the Greek and we're going to see how our interpretation actually helps illumine this passage. So in Colossians 2, verse 1, it starts off by saying, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, for all of those who have not personally seen my face, that their heart may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ. So there, Christ is the mystery of God that the true knowledge of is something that is given to these Laodiceans and, of course, to the readers in Colossians as well. And so we have this long run-on sentence to where the mystery of God is described as Christ. And there's no confusion here. Nobody thinks that God here is actually Jesus. However, in the Greek, that might be a conclusion that someone would come to. But the interpreters have all understood that Jesus, the reference to Jesus, the reference to Christ, is something that is referring to in regard to the true knowledge of God's mystery. So in Greek, we have the phrase to uh, mysterio, to theu Christu. And if you were to translate this straight across, it would be of the mystery of the God of Christ. To where God of Christ is there, and you would think that's actually a phrase that is connected together. However, every single translation and the consensus in Colossian scholarship is that those phrases are not connected because it's clear that Christ is the apposition to the true knowledge of God's mystery. Christ is not connected to God in that particular phrase. So, if that sort of understanding goes without saying, 
even when it goes against the natural reading of the Greek, then we can see some evidence that that reading should show up in Titus 2.13, to where we have this long run-on sentence, which talks about the grace of God and the fact that we are looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing, the epiphany of the glory, this glorious Jesus, of our great God and Savior, which is a reference to the Father. So the suggestion of the glory reading is not something that is completely unheard of within Pauline theology because the same thing appears in Colossians 2 verses 1 through 2. So in conclusion, I need to acknowledge a few points. I should acknowledge that all three of these interpretations are grammatically possible. I'm saying that because all of these interpretations are trying to take seriously the Greek, they're trying to respect the Greek as much as possible, and if only we had the Greek and we had no other evidence to look at that might point us in a particular direction, each of these interpretations would be possible. I also want to acknowledge that I think it's unlikely that there's going to be a consensus reached on the original meaning of Titus 2.13 anytime soon within biblical scholarship. I looked over commentaries written over the last 60 years on Titus to see the arguments, and it seems like every single commentary repeats the same arguments over and over. Nobody's saying too much that is new, and you'll see some people that will uh, take one side, some people will take another side. In fact, you'll have some commentators that will put out all the evidence and they won't even take a side because they don't think that there is a side that can be reasonably argued. I also want to acknowledge that, you know what? I could be wrong. I could be mistaken with this. It's possible that the one-person view in reference to Christ Jesus is the true view. It's also possible that the two-person interpretation is also true. I do think that the third option, the glory option, in which that which will be finally manifested at the second coming is God's glory, namely Jesus Christ. I do think this is the most persuasive reading, as far as I can tell, in July of 2021. Ask me again in a couple years and we'll see if I've changed my mind. But hopefully this has been a good walkthrough of the various ways to read Titus 2.13. You can look at the strengths of each argument. You can look at the weaknesses of each argument. And you can also look at this glory interpretation, which I do not think that enough biblical Unitarians are considering in their reading. And I do think that when you look at all the evidence, it is the strongest of the three readings. It is the most persuasive of the three readings. It doesn't have any of their weaknesses. It takes all of their strengths. And to me, I think that makes a good, unbiased biblical reading. So thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we look at scriptural citations of the Old Testament, where Yahweh was the original referent, but the New Testament reference is clearly pointing to Jesus. How are we to understand when the New Testament uses Yahweh text of Jesus? Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you've enjoyed the podcast, 
please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of God's oneness and Jesus' humanity. You may check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.